All right. Well, we're all in this together. Um, it's great to see you. You know, I do want to say, if you're at home, for whatever reason you're at home, I totally respect your choice to be there, and I really love you, and look forward to the day where we don't have all these imposed situations causing us to have to not be together, whether it's in heart or in body. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 3. One of the things I'm doing during this season, because it is a, a heavy season for many of us, I see that Darian left this cord all over the floor here, hoping that we would get a sweet meme of me falling off the stage, no doubt. Let me just clear that up. Um, One of the things I'm doing is just trying to absorb copious amounts of Scripture during this season, just to carb load for this um, long marathon race that we're all going through. And I I think it actually really helps. Uh, 20 chapters a day of scripture isn't too much in a heavy season like this. So if you are finding your spirits are a little bit low, why don't you um, ingest the ultimate superfood, which is the word of God. But as I was doing this process, I just ran across a scripture that just really struck out to me and touched my heart, and I've just been processing it through the week. So we're going to read this together, and then I'm just going to make comments and then we can go and have a wonderful lunch afterwards, all by ourselves. All right. First, I'm going to turn this on. Before we get there, before I pray, I just want us to remind us, we have a vision statement as our church, which we're trying to use as a guiding beacon for our activities. One of the things that happens, especially during a time like this, where the rules are always changing every five minutes, is that you can lose focus on your purpose. You can lose focus on why we're here. Um, And so just as a reminder, this is our vision statement as a church. And it's this, that we live to love and worship God and to multiply passionate and obedient disciples of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the kingdom by his word and the Holy Spirit. And if I do my job well this morning, we will not only see God more clearly in a way to love and worship him, but also to be built up as disciples of Christ, people who are learning to obey him, learning to serve him, and learning to be like him with our lives by the power of his word and the Holy Spirit. But would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come to you afresh. Thank you for this time of worship we've had. Thank you for just the grace of singing songs to you and that you you inhabit the praises of your people. Father, I need great grace today. Father, I need um, help in speaking a word for the church. And we need help together to hear what you're saying and to be impacted. So God, would you send your spirit on us afresh and give us great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 3. This is John the Baptist talking as people were challenging him on who he thought he was. He was baptizing all these people with a baptism of repentance. And he explains, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, or for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Whoop. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. These are the very words of God. All right, what's going on here? Well, I just want to run through this story, and perhaps it will come together by the end. But by the end, I would like us to consider that God may be leading us into this second code redage, loss of freedoms, loss of getting what we wanted going on, and to call us to um, walk with Jesus maybe in a better way than we did the first time if we need to do that. And then I would love us to have a prayer time together where we spend some time just welcoming the Holy Spirit to minister to us together. So let's start with John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. He was a second cousin of Jesus. And he was sent by God to call Israel to repentance because God was sending the Messiah. God was sending the Chosen One, the true son of David, the true king, to be the rescuer of Israel. But the problem was that they weren't ready. They were still full of sin. They were still full of unbelief. And so uh, the John the Baptist came to get the people ready for Christ. And his main ministry was to preach to Israel her sins and to call her to come and to get into the Jordan River and repent of her sins and then to have her sins washed away. And this was why he's called the Baptist. It's not because he was part of a certain church denomination, which is really funny. Like, you know, it's not because he didn't believe in drinking alcohol or anything like that or had a really high view of John Piper. He was a baptizer. He, he baptized people, and his baptism was specifically for people who wanted to admit that they were sinners and unworthy of God and unworthy of the coming of Christ, but wanted to be transformed. And so they would come, and they would get baptized by John and then seek to live a transformed life in order to be ready for the coming of the Messiah. And, of course, he became very famous, and, of course, he became very controversial. Everyone's trying to figure out, are you the Messiah? Are you the Elijah? Are you somebody else? Are you a fake? Are you a charlatan? And so he was insisting that he wasn't the Messiah, but that he was getting ready for the Messiah. And this was his description. We read it before, that he was just doing a water baptism of repentance, but somebody was coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit, 
and that he is so much greater than John the Baptist that John the Baptist isn't even worthy of doing the most menial task that a servant would do for somebody else, which would be to carry their sandals around or take their sandals off at the end of the day. That was like low, 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 low work. And he said, when the Messiah comes, I won't even be worthy of touching his feet. And one of the things that this teaches us is what the Bible would call the doctrine of the fall of man or the fallenness of man. That every human being is by nature and by action unworthy of God. We've sinned and we can't fix it. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. And one of the things about this story that so underlines and puts the exclamation mark on our helplessness is even this interchange that John the Baptist and Jesus have. Because John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man born of women in their age. Later on in the gospel, as Jesus is trying to help his generation understand who John the Baptist was, he says, John was the greatest man born of woman. He was the greatest living man on the planet. He was a prophet of God who lived by the zeal of God, was so committed and fearless before God that he preached himself to death by confronting Herod and his illegal marriage to his (laughs) sister-in-law. Yeah, she must have been really pretty or manipulative. One of those two things, because marrying your sister is no good. You know, I don't recommend it. And, uh, But John confronted him on this and got himself, got his head cut off. He's so faithful, so holy, so zealous, a prophet of the Lord. But when he talks to Jesus, he says this in verse 13. When Jesus comes to get baptized, John wants to say, no, no, I'm not baptizing you. He says, I need to be baptized by you. I need to get into the waters. I need to confess my sin. I need to confess my unworthiness. I need to have you forgive me as I repent. He is the greatest living man on the planet, and he knows he's unworthy of Christ. And when the Christ comes and he says, John, it's time for you to baptize me, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. I need you to baptize me. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. I'm not right with God. Even though Jesus is looking at him and saying, you're still the best the world has to offer right now. And as we're in a time in history where, what are the problems? Are the problems in our life uh, political leaders? Are the problems in our life a virus? This story reminds us that the greatest problem in the world is human sin. Always has been, always will be. And if we forget as Christians that that is the problem, that is our danger and that is the problem, then we aren't actually doing our job. We can become the greatest people in the world. And if we still knew what was going on, we would say to Jesus, I am unworthy of you. I'm not even worthy to touch your feet. And I need you to forgive me. World, we need a savior. We need a savior. This is, this is the situation of the world. And not a political savior, who promises to save us by taxing us and taking our money and then spending it. I I get crazy about political solutions. It's like all they can do is throw us in jail or take our money. That's all they can do. That doesn't touch our hearts at all. And even if the greatest leader of all time came around and solved every racial problem and every other problem, we would still have fallen hearts and it wouldn't take us 10 days to destroy the world again. 
One of the lessons of the fall in Genesis is that you can have the, an, an unfallen man and an unfallen woman living in paradise in a perfect relationship, and they can still blow it, and we could still blow it too. Our hope must never be in ourselves or in another human being. And this is what John the Baptist knew, and this is what he acted like. He was the greatest man on the planet, and when Jesus showed up, he said, thank goodness, because I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. I can't fix this. I can't fix Israel. All I can do is preach repentance for you coming. And that's all of us. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He's the only solution, but he's the best solution, so... Let's look at Jesus next. I'm hoping to hit all the members of the Trinity today. Praise God. So what's Jesus doing here? When Jesus shows up in this story, he does something really weird. He comes to get baptized. And he starts a fight with John because he's the Messiah. He's the sinless one. He's the Savior. But he wants to act out the baptism of repentance. Why is that weird? Because repentance is what sinners do. Repentance is when you say, I have done wrong against God and I acknowledge it and I confess it. I want things to change. And so I confess my sin and by the grace of God, I would like to change. That's repentance. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. And John looks at Jesus and he says, to the effect, he says, you don't have anything to repent about. Why would I baptize you? For repentance. You've, you're not a sinner. Why would I treat you like a sinner by baptizing you? Do you see the problem here? Maybe you know the answer already because a lot of people have been to church a long time around here, but John didn't know what was going on. And, so, and Jesus compels this. He doesn't come and say, I should get baptized. John says, no, no, you're sinless. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. This is on purpose. What's going on here? Why is it necessary for righteousness that Jesus be baptized and treated like a sinner by John? Why? Because Jesus came to be our Savior by becoming our covenant head. I just lost half of you there. Jesus came to start a new humanity, to be a new Adam, to start the human race over again. And so he came to be a covenant head. Now, we actually do know what this means. Why do people fight about who should be president so much? It's not just because he has some powers. Because American presidents, they have a lot of limited powers. They're not God and they're not kings. The Senates can shut them down. The Congress can shut them down. The Supreme Courts can shut them down. They're, they have a lot of celebrity influence. But the reason people fight about it is because that person is about to become the covenant head of the nation. And everything they do is going to flow downhill by relationship. Even if you don't like your new president, it's still your president. And as Canadians, even if you don't like your prime minister, by covenant, because we are the citizens of Canada, he's still our prime minister. So if he does stuff that's great, we can kind of feel Canadian proud about stuff. You know, like Canadians love to feel proud. Healthcare and poppy seeds and... Hockey and politeness, you know? We always hit, like, first or second best nation in the world to live in and all those studies. We probably 
sponsored the studies. You know, every time someone comes out first place in a study, you always have to be like, who did you pay for this study? You got, yeah, maybe, I don't know. But we understand that we're related to this person when they become the leader. Right? Love it or hate it. And God is presenting Jesus to the people of God to become their covenant head so that everything he does, he's doing for his people. Everything he accomplishes, he accomplishes for his people. Everything he earns, he earns for his people. And everything he acts out, he acts out on behalf of his people. And in order for him to be the true savior of sinners, he needs to go down into their sin to save them, even though he has no sin. So that as he stands there in the water of repentance, in the place of every sinner who will come to him and put their faith in him, everything that happens to Jesus when he's standing in the baptismal waters of repentance is what everybody who believes in Jesus gets. That's the big point. And I'm going to explain in a second why this is so important. But one more illustration about covenant headship. Any hockey fans out there? Okay, there's at least one. Steve, I hope you're watching. Imagine there's this hockey game where it's kind of like the Pistons versus the Timbits. Okay, you know the Timbits? They're the like minor, tiny, tiniest little hockey players who just just fall over the ice and hopefully the puck moves when they're falling. They're just these little kids. It's really cute. If you haven't seen them, it's really good. It's cute. And the Pistons are kind of like the older teenager team in town and they're 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 not NHL, but they're also not Timbits, right? Now, if there was a, a, a game where the Timbits were facing off against the Pistons, who would win? Assuming that they've tried their best. Okay? It's the Pistons. Thank you. Over there. I, I need, everyone else is like, I don't trust this analogy. Where's he going? <laughs> You're wonderful. Now, imagine the Timbits got a ringer, and they managed to get onto their team a 1998 Wayne Gretzky. And he puts the Timbit jersey on there. And he's all young and, and got all the energy in the world. And he's on their team. How would that change things? And make him the team captain. He's got the C on his Timbit jersey. Now, it's four Timbits and Gretzky versus the Pistons. How do you think the game would go? It'd still probably be a bloodbath with one of the greatest hockey players at the top of his game. And you know, the Timbits could still be there, not being great hockey players, just falling over the ice. But as long as Gretzky's just putting rubber in the net all day long, whose team wins? You can say this part out loud. Whose whose team still wins? The Timbits. And they can be the most terrible. They could be just sitting there crying on the ice. I want to turn with the puck. As Gretzky just, just shovels past, like every corner, just bounces, bounces off the goalie. Every, like, ten goals off the goalie's own mat. Just, just, ooh, the red light never turns off. Even though it's just one great player whose team wins. The Timbits. Because he's on there playing for the team. And this is what's going on with Jesus. For everyone who believes in Jesus, you put on the Jesus jersey and you get his goals. 
You get his wins. You get his accomplishments. Even if you haven't added anything besides crying on the ice, if you're on Team Jesus, he's your covenant head, and his victories are your victories, and his goals are your goals. This is how covenant headship works. And so Jesus had to get down into the waters of repentance because that's where all the people he wanted to save are. The sinners that need to repent, that's where he gets them. Amen? And so this is what God does when Jesus goes down into the waters of repentance, not because he's a sinner, but to stand in the place of sinners. God tears open heaven and descends on him in the spirit of God in the form of a dove. And a voice comes down from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And two things are going on here. The first is this. Jesus the man is getting equipped to become the baptizer. Number one. Okay, remember what John the baptizer said right here? I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is when Jesus receives in public through the form of the dove, the Holy Spirit that he is going to minister through as well as to impart to his disciples as the Holy Spirit baptizer, as well as this declaration from heaven is God the Father declaring his fatherhood over son as well as his love and joy in the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen? And there's lots going on there because this is echoing the Psalm 2 kingship psalm. I think it's Psalm 2 of David so that when these words are happening, it's affirming Jesus' kingship over Israel and blah, blah, blah. And there's tons going on, but I'm not going to get into it right now. The second thing that's happening is because Jesus stands for us as his followers. We know that when we, too, stand in the baptism waters of repentance, or, I'm convinced, when we enter into the humility of coming before God and saying we are lost and we are sinners and we've blown it again, we know how God responds because we know how God responded to Jesus when he acted like a sinner. When we humble ourselves and confess our sin, whether it's the first time coming to Jesus or the first millionth time coming to Jesus, we know what we get. We get a fresh presence of the Holy Spirit and God the Father's pleasure over us. That's why it had to happen in public so that all the sinners who needed to get into the water to say that I've sinned, we know how God responds. When you say, God, I've sinned and I'm lost and I need your forgiveness, we know he doesn't just sit in heaven going, yeah, you don't even know half the story. We know that what happens is that heaven gets torn open and the Holy Spirit's presence comes to us and the Father says, I am pleased that you're acknowledging the truth and coming to me through Jesus. This is why the gospel is good news for sinners. That when we admit and confess that we're lost without God, you don't get a guilt trip, you don't get destruction, you don't get rejection, you get the Father saying over you, now afresh I confirm you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And there is something kind of insane about this because usually, you know, as a child... When you were playing with your dad's tools 
and you found that little thing on the ground that looked like it would be interesting to whack with a wrench, and then it explodes because it's a 22 cartridge, and you go and tell your dad that you set up a, a firearm in the garage, what's the response? Or when you've been fighting with your sibling, or when you've wrecked something, or you've been being evil, what's usually the response? Well done, my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. No. And that's why the gospel is different than everything else. Jesus Christ earned for us a response from God where he would be pleased in our humility and pleased in our honesty and pleased that we would just be coming to Jesus again. He bought for us the pleasure of the Father being pleased when we acknowledge our need for him. Because that's not normal, is it? But according to what happened in history and the word of God, that is God's response to our humility before him. Confess your sins. Oh, now God's really going to reject me. Wrong. God is really going to stand over you in the presence of the Holy Spirit and be proud of you and pleased with you. That's why Jesus had to get in the water, even though he never deserved to get in the water, so that we would know what God does with needy sinners like me. Amen? Yikers. Now let's keep moving this on, though, because I was really struck by what happens next. And I think we, this might be helpful as well. You know, if you're helped already... If this is good enough, if your plate is full, you can press click on here. The message will still be online later. But if you're done, you can be done. Go play with your kids. They're probably losing their patience anyways right now. But then something happens that is a curveball. You know, initially I was just going to preach up to here. And then I kept reading. I was like, oh, that's weird. Maybe we should explore that. Because... Right after this moment of the father publicly proclaiming his pleasure in his son, and it is a big pleasure, and it is a pure pleasure, and it is a holy pleasure, and it is a full pleasure. What's the next thing that happens in this gospel? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, let's just read that back and forth and see if that fits how we think the world works. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Huh? This is one of these unfortunate chapter breaks where you read to the end of chapter 3, and then you're done your reading for the day, and then the next day you pick it up at chapter 4, and you think, new story, what happened yesterday? I don't remember. Let's just pick it up here. There is no chapter breaks in the original. In fact, there aren't even breaks in between letters or words in the original Greek. It's just all capital letters. It's just one big page full of capital letters, and you have to figure it out. But this is how it went. Baptized, spirit, confession of pleasure, Go into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Huh? Read that again. Baptism, spirit, confession of pleasure. Now get into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Huh? Is this our expectation? I got a fresh filling of the spirit. It's time for loneliness. It's time for hunger. It's time for loss. It's time for isolation. It's time for mental anguish. It's time for temptation. Huh? 
And, it, and I, I think I need to push on this. For two reasons. Number one is because I think, I could be wrong, and if this isn't you, you're free. But I think sometimes in our contemporary charismatic Pentecostal culture, you can, we can assume that if you're being led by the Spirit, it means that you're hitting the jackpot. And that great things are going to happen immediately and all the time. So it's like you're, you're, you're at Club Regent, which is probably closed down. You put your quarter into the following God slot machine and you pull it. And you come, and I'm going to try to be led by the Spirit. Big money, big money. And then, then you're going to get the three cherries and just the coins are going to come flying out. I'm imagining what this is like. I haven't been there in at least three days, you know. <laughs> Waiting for my next paycheck before I go back. <laughs> just kidding. I was there for a wedding one time. It was so weird. Um, we can assume that being genuinely led by the Spirit means you're about to have fun or, or something wonderful is going to happen. And that's totally not what happened here. And I can almost imagine even, do you imagine if you're John the Baptist and you're like, yes, the Messiah just showed up and I baptized him. I'm never washing these clothes because I don't have any other clothes, but I'm never washing these clothes. Oh, spirit-filled Messiah. I heard the voice. I saw the dove. Oh, this is so great. What are you going to do next? 40 days of nothing. He wanders out into the desert and does nothing, does nothing. He does nothing. He just sits there, sits in a cave, sits on a rock, just sits on there, just muttering himself, just praying. Nothing, does nothing, does nothing. Would you be disappointed? The Spirit just came on the Messiah. Nothing's happening. I would totally look at that and be like, that guy's not being led by the Spirit. So this is, this is pushing on my brain and how my expectations work. Because sometimes you do get led by the Lord and it is straight into trouble. Remember, he's our covenant head. What he does, he does for us. And number two, I think it's really good just to remind as, as, us as, um, as Bible readers, there are, in the scriptures, there's two types of being led by the Spirit. The first type is that kind of like, go there, do this kind of leading, right? It's like where Jesus is led into the desert. It's time to go in the desert. And he goes, okay, I'm going to go into the desert. And we like being led by that, like that, and that's great. It's like, go talk to this person or phone that person or invest tons of money in that stock. Just kidding. And um, that kind of being led. But the other kind of being led is here as well, but we don't always see it. And that's when the Spirit leads us not geographically or into an activity, but into spiritual warfare against sin and the devil. So let me give you an example of this from Romans chapter 8. And it's really interesting, to me at least, because this chapter of Romans, starting in verse 12, has all the same things going on here. It has the Father, it has the Spirit, it has warfare, it has suffering. Christ is being led into suffering by going into the desert. And so listen to this. is Romans chapter 8, verse 12. It says, So then we are debtors, not to the flesh. And the flesh here means like life apart from Christ, a life of sin, a life controlled by mindsets that are sinful. To live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that our, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I'm reading this passage here so that, because sometimes you can read the Gospels and you'll be like, that's just Jesus. But Paul says that this same kind of event where, where sonship, spirit-confirmed sonship, means spiritual warfare is here, here, as well as in Romans. You've received the spirit of adoption. The spirit is crying out inside your heart, Abba, Father. And as sons, as daughters, what are you being led to do? To put to death the misdeeds of the body, to fight your sin, to fight temptation, to, to, to change, to win. Not necessarily to go on missions in Bukatan. Though they're both legitimate, there's two kinds. Maybe the difference is that the Spirit is sometimes leading us to do physical stuff, but always leading to us to do the spiritual warfare stuff. Amen? All right. So let's read some of these sonship battles that Jesus goes through here. How long have I been talking for, Sheldon? Thirty-four or forty-three? Okay. I have no idea what he's communicating there. I need the interpretation of fingers right now. All right. Yeah, we do have to get through this. Temptation number one. The temptation to take control of Jesus' own loss in this situation. He is a son. He is filled with the Spirit. He has no food. The tempter comes along and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he could. Jesus absolutely has the authority and the power to feed himself in that minute. Wouldn't you do it? Turn that rock into a toaster and make Pop-Tarts come out of it. I can do that? Yeah, you can. But Jesus has actually been led into this suffering, and so he's not going to alleviate it apart from God's will. And so he says instead, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is such a great passage, because it's not just about aiming to be content with Scripture during suffering, even though it is that. If you go back into Deuteronomy where this passage is, it comes out of a passage where God is talking about Israel's time in the desert, in the desert, and how they didn't do so great in the desert because they were grumbling all the time. Do you remember this? Everything that happened, they were grumbling. They go up to the Red Sea and they grumble, and then they get to the Red Sea and they grumble and land, and they don't want to because they're giants and they grumble, and then they get told they're not going to the promised land because they wouldn't go in, and then they grumble. And And God says about that entire time in the desert in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 6, but I could be wrong. He said, I tested you in the desert so that you would know what's in your own heart. And I made you to hunger in order to teach you that man would not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And it's so interesting to me, at least, how God will orchestrate extended periods of time where we aren't getting what we want, COVID, in order that we can know what's in our own heart. Because almost all of us think we're doing better than we actually are. I got an amener back then. All right. So now is the time where you try not to think about what's been coming out of your heart in the last eight months. And for me, I've had some spectacularly ugly sins come out of my heart in the last eight months. And it is totally a gift from a sinner-loving father to a spirit-filled son so that I could learn afresh that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the living God. It's a gift. It's a gift. The next thing the devil took Jesus through because Jesus was led to go through it and to go into it, is to take him to this pinnacle of the temple. Okay, so you remember the temple was this humongous um, architectural wonder that Herod built. And as far as I understand, it was this huge stone structure. It was totally covered in gold, just completely amazing. And as far as the people of God were concerned, it was the center of the universe that everything revolved around. And the devil takes Jesus. I don't know how he does this, but he puts him on the pinnacle of it, at the top of it. Probably weren't any coffee stains up there, but... (laughs) Which makes it less perfect. And And he tempts Jesus with probably what's the first attempt of the prosperity gospel here. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, because it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And to me, I always come back to this weird, this weird passage because it reminds me that Satan is a theologian who knows how to use Scripture. Ah! Wouldn't life be easier if Satan couldn't use Scripture? Couldn't even say it? But he can. And he's trying to get Jesus to do something spectacular, probably in front of the crowds, and you know, become a Christian celebrity, um, like those guys who jump out of hot air balloons from seven miles up and then wingsuit down to earth. Or, I don't know. But he's trying to get him, in in Jesus' weakness, in his loneliness, in his desert time, to focus on the verses that promise good things and demand them now. And Jesus says, it's not God's will for me now, essentially, says, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. And what I think Jesus is doing here is he's building this whole theology of trusting that God still loves you even while you're waiting for him to fulfill his promises to you. I don't need to jump off a cliff right now so that it's proved that God can protect me. It's, It's not the time. Now's the time for me to still be in the desert. And it reminds me of one of the key passages for me during this time. Um, from First Peter verse five, sorry, chapter five, starting in verse six. Peter, I, you know, so you sometimes wonder if they're just riffing off of these stories. He says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you." Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout all the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's so many of the same themes here. A father who cares for you. A promise of being exalted. Just needing to wait for it. And not putting God to the test by demanding it happens right now, 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 now. And finally, this last temptation of the beloved son, spirit-led savior. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And here's the temptation. Jesus came to get all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he came to get it from the Father. The Father, by sending him as the Messiah and the King, Jesus came to inherit the entire planet and the universe. Everything, everything, everything is Jesus's. What's the difference between the Father's plan to give Jesus everything and the devil's plan to give Jesus everything? The difference is that in Satan's plan, there's no cross. And that's the temptation for Jesus. I will give you everything you could ever want. And you don't even have to get the, go to the cross to get it. And Jesus sends him away. And for all of us and many of us, this is, this is the craziest thing. As a Christian, we know that God has promised us the entire universe. We are co-inheritors with Christ in everything. There isn't anything in this planet that isn't going to be yours. Where do we often fall down? It's knowing that we're called to suffer to get it. Just in case you think I'm making this up. Romans chapter 8 again. And if we are children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. I'm really excited about the Trinity. Our God, a God of infinite fatherly love towards us in Christ. A spirit of leadership and power purchased for us, won for us by the best sovereign Jesus who has gone through everything for us and is with us in everything for us. Even now, the scripture says that Jesus is interceding for his church. He's praying for us right now. Because Jesus, when he came to the earth, what he was saying to us is, from now on, I am 100%, not that he ever wasn't, but just, I'm 100% for my people. 
If they need me to act like a sinner, I'll act like a sinner. If they need me to die on the cross like a sinner, I'll die on the cross like a sinner. If they need me to be raised from the, the grave to, into eternal life, I'll be raised from the grave into eternal life. If they need me to send the Spirit to them, I'll send the Spirit to them. If they need me to walk with them in a daily walk, I'll walk with them in a daily walk. If they need me to speak to them, I'll speak to them. If they need me to give them the Scriptures, I'll give them the Scriptures. If they need apostles, I'll give them apostles. Jesus has, through his life, he's been given to us as Messiah to be 100% personally loyal to everyone who comes to him. This is crazy. Do you know anybody who's 100% selflessly loyal to you? Well, you know Jesus, Charles. (laughs) At least one. This is the good news, is there is a perfect man with unlimited power who the Father has sent to be 100% loyal to us forever. In this life, in our death, if you're one of the COVID statistics, you are going to, it's going to be the best day of your life. You're going to go see the one who did everything for you and wants to be with you forever. Not that I want that to happen to you, because I want to put you to work. Just kidding. But the the trials for us are this. Can we go into the spirit-led troubles that God has for us? Knowing that we're still his children. Responding like we're still his children. Responding like God has a plan. Responding like he's got a good end to this story. And for me, this is the biggest trial. Um, for me, one of my greatest weaknesses in life is that when the, the pain increases, I just start to wonder where God is. Is, is anybody else like that? When, the, when the things go crazy, you're just like, God, where are you in all of this? And that's actually like a satanic temptation. Because every time Satan wanted to destroy Jesus, he said... If you're really the son of God, you know, if God really loves you, if he really meant it when you were being baptized, if he really meant that he's pleased with you, if he really meant this stuff, then you could do this and you could get that and you would have this. You wouldn't need to wait. You wouldn't need to suffer. You wouldn't need to endure. You wouldn't need to humble yourself. You wouldn't need to repent. You wouldn't need to get those bodies. If you really loved. Does anybody else feel like there's a spiritual warfare about that in their hearts and minds? If God were really for you, it wouldn't be like this. And that's part of why Jesus went through that temptation to prove, to prove that the love of the Father does not go up and down with whether you're with your friends or you're in the desert, with you're all alone or surrounded, if you're hungry or full, if your mind feels at peace or if you're sorely tempted. The, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well, well pleased does not change. It doesn't change. I think that's part of why Jesus had... That's the first thing that happened to Jesus after the declaration is he went right into where the devil usually kills us. You're not his son. You're not beloved. He's not with you. You're not his daughter. You're not beloved. He's not with you. And you can tell because of how hard things are. And so Jesus went right into that to kill that for his people. To say, that's a lie for his people. To say, I've conquered this for his people. So that that knowledge of your sonship and daughtership does not go up and down with your circumstance. Or with what Satan is saying to you. Amen? We're going into a time where nobody's going to get what they want again. 
And perhaps it is 100% led by the Spirit. Perhaps it is 100% the gift of God for each one of us. Perhaps, perhaps, do we need to win this different than we didn't win it before? Can we, can we know our Christ in a new way and know the confession of the Father's love in a new way and hold on to the truth because Jesus holds us fast in a new way? And can we come out of round two lockdowns having met with God in the desert and stronger in the spirit because of the victory over temptation than we did the first time, perhaps, maybe? Is it a gift? Okay, Lisa, can you bring the band up here? We're going to do something different. We're going to do something different. We're going to do something different, okay? We're going to stand up, and we are going to welcome this Christ-bought spirit for us. And we're not going to lay hands on, even though that's normal and it's right because of the circumstances. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to start touching our hearts. You can stand up now. Does anybody want... The Holy Spirit, regardless of circumstance. Okay. If you need to confess anything to Jesus and join him in the waters afresh, just do it knowing that the Father will be pleased with it and the dove will come to you. But just where we are, okay, we're not rushing. We're not Russian. We're Canadian. Well, let's just, if you want to put your hands out, that's fine. This is one of the things about Calvary. Everybody's a little bit different here, and God knows how to meet you where you are. Really, all you need to do is be humble and want Him. So let's close our eyes together, and we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, you know what kind of restrictions we're honoring. You know we're... We're trying to do this by faith. Not that we're approving or condoning everything, but just trying to be respectful because you called us to. And Holy Spirit, would you come and touch hearts right now? Father, there's so many burdens. Oh God, fear of the future. Oh God. God, this sense of lostness about the Father's love for some of us. Oh God. Would you just come afresh? Confirm your presence to us, bought by Jesus in those waters, bought for sinners forever. And would you just be touching our hearts?